Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. I'm really excited to be introducing our guest today for a number of reasons, but our guest is a professor at the Darden Graduate School of Business and the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with teaching, research, consulting, and program building interest in leadership and workplace. And he is also the author of the recently released book, Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being brave at work. So that's why we have something in common. Jim and I both have an interest in helping people build their self-awareness on how to be braver in the workplace. And certainly things like bravery at work, courage at work, uh, psychological safety, these are all things that are of great interest to both of us. So hello, Jim. I hope you're doing well. It's great to be here. Thanks. You're welcome. So I did a light introduction of you, and I think our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about your background and really how you've come to do what you do today. So if you could share that uh, perspective with us, we deeply appreciate it. Sure. So I I did my dissertation uh, 20 years ago now on why people do or don't speak up at work. And, you know, not surprisingly, in a nutshell, when people feel it's safe, you know, what what we now hear a lot about is psychological safety, right? So when people feel it's safe, they generally are more willing to speak up. And when they think it's not safe, they don't. They remain silent, even when they you know, have important pieces of information, ideas, knowledge of problems. But what was clear way back then is that there's a, there is a third option. There are people who, even though they don't think it's particularly safe, they recognize it might be risky, they still speak up. And that was clear 20 years ago in my dissertation. And that has you know, borne out hundreds or thousands of times um, in my studies going forward. And so for a long time, I knew there was this thing, you know, courage, there was courageous action, right? Because courageous action is really nothing more than being willing to do something for a worthy cause, despite it being risky. Uh, I knew there was courageous action happening. And then as I continued to teach courses on leadership, people uh, would continuously say, we agree with you, Jim. It's not about how many tools we have. It's about whether we're willing to use them in those critical moments. And so tell us more about you know, what it means to be courageous and how we might go about doing it. And, and so as those things and others came together, I just became convinced that 
I needed to spend a decade of my time really helping others. I needed to first develop the understanding and then help others learn how they could be more what I would call competently courageous. So not just be willing to sort of speak out or stand up at work, but to do it in a way that made positive change with as little downside for themselves as possible. Great. Well, it's interesting to hear that this experience that people have of not saying something that they need or should say in the workplace is not new. You mentioned your paper was 20 years old. So I think we all know that this is something that has probably existed for quite some time. And, you know, it's important to also recognize that there are a number of reasons why people may not feel comfortable or feel it's the right time or have the bravery or courage to say things at work. And I'd love if you can, from your book or from your research, Jim, you know, share what maybe what the top two or three reasons are why somebody may not say something that they believe is valuable or could help, but just choose not to do it. Yeah. So let's, let's go with the three top reasons. So one, people fear economic or career consequences. You know, sure, in the U.S. we have a First Amendment, but the U.S., but the First Amendment you know, protects your right to say things about political authorities in your private life without, you know, consequence. For the vast majority of us, when we enter the front door in our workplace, you know, the First Amendment's out the window. And, and people know that implicitly. Um, if, you, if you challenge power, if you challenge authority, if you challenge longstanding, you know, norms in an organization, there's a chance that your career will derail doesn't mean you'll get fired. You know, that happens more rarely. But, you know, maybe you're suddenly not in the in-group anymore. Maybe you're not on the, you know, path to promotion anymore. Maybe you're sort of out of the room in important moments going forward. So there's those consequences. And we tend to focus on those. It also turns out, though, that there's two other big kinds of risks people fear. The second is social cost. Um, You know, if you ask, for example, why don't people confront or tell the truth to their peers or even subordinates, right? Those are not folks who generally have the power to formally sanction you in a career way. Yet we don't do that often too. And there the primary reason is is social. If you think about our sort of time on earth as a species for the vast majority of time, uh, we were in small bands, our survival physically literally depended on being sort of in the group, part of the clan, to be cast out was actually likely going to mean death. So it's not illogical that even today we still fear being ostracized or excluded. Um, and many people simply don't want to jeopardize relationships by pushing boundaries, saying or doing difficult things. And then the third thing you will see in many contexts is people just don't want the psychological risks or potential consequences of speaking up or being bold in other ways, right? So if I stay in my lane, I continue to do Uh, what I know best. I only speak up about issues I'm I'm fully expert on. I don't have to risk being embarrassed. I don't have to risk looking stupid publicly. Um, I don't have to sort of go home and look in the mirror and ask myself, why did I, you know, say something so stupid at work today? So if you put that all together, you know, it's not surprising, right? If people are worried about what's going to happen to me and my family, am I going to lose my friendships at work? And am I going to feel like an idiot? It's not surprising that people hold their tongue a lot. Well, I think the two that you mentioned that resonate with me, both in my professional career uh, in a variety of organizations, as well as a leadership coach working with people, are really the social and psychological aspects. You know, this, hey, we have a good thing going. I don't want to mess with it. 
And if I tell you something that might be hard for you to hear or might be different than how you feel, it might alter that. And I'll forever be regretting that I said something because I kind of altered that relationship. I mean, is that what you heard from people you spoke to? That's for sure what people think. It's it's interesting, um, though, when that you mentioned the word regret, because I think actually that's a case where what we think and then what in fact is likely differ quite a bit. You know, when you actually look at the regret literature, uh, the literature is actually pretty clear that what people tend to regret over time uh, are not the things that they did that didn't go perfectly. We're, we're actually quite good at getting over, you know, geez, I said the wrong thing or I wish I had behaved different. We're good at getting over that. The thing we're not so good at getting over is inaction regret. So I should have done and I didn't. And so, yeah, I think what holds a lot of people back is I'm going to regret kind of beliefs, but I think those are actually often mistaken beliefs. We're much more likely to regret the fact that we didn't say something when we know we should have. Well, and it also seems like many of the reasons we don't say what we should say are self-created. I'm not sure what the right word is for that, but we create these reasons, right? They may not be in existence. No one may have ever said to you, don't ever give me critical feedback, because if you do socially, we'll never talk again. And psychologically, you're going to pay for it. But I create this belief that this may happen, and that becomes a roadblock to saying what I need to say. Yeah, it, it's actually it's a great point. Uh, and in fact, in back in 2011, published a paper. It was a paper that came out of my dissertation initially on uh, what we called implicit voice theories. And the idea was that uh, it, it came from, I'll tell you the idea in a second, what it came from was the observation that many people would tell me in interviews, yeah, I'm afraid to speak up, it'll be a disaster. And when I would ask them, well, can you give me an example of an actual consequence that people have suffered? They would say, oh, no, 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 but nothing ever happens to anybody around here. And so what I realized is that for many people, these feared consequences, these presumed consequences, actually were less based in sort of observed experience and more in a deeply internalized set of beliefs they had about the danger or the inappropriateness of doing certain things. So people walk around, for example, with beliefs like, you don't speak up in public. It doesn't matter if your boss never said, don't speak up in meetings, only do it in private. People bring that belief to their new organizations and their bosses. You know, doesn't matter if your boss has ever said, hey, don't challenge me on the things I'm personally sort of identified with or have an ownership over because I'll really be sensitive about those. Your boss may actually desperately want you to point out issues with those because they're the things he or she cares most about. But if you bring to that boss relationship this belief of like, oh, people can't hear the truth about their pet projects, you will self-censor. And so that was really a set of research in a paper about self-censoring. And it, it turns out that a lot of, this is not to minimize that real things do happen, bad things do happen when people speak up. Uh, it's simply to add that in plenty of cases, there doesn't need to be any real consequences because people will project and believe there will be those consequences anyway. Well, and it sounds as though, um, you know, this idea of regret which is a, you know, a key word that I've heard from others on this podcast, also stays with you sometimes for decades. I know I think back on my corporate career and I clearly remember 
you know, I'll, I'll be kind to myself, two or three things that, you know, I wish I had said or wish I had done differently. They almost become like part of your DNA, right? Because you wish you had said something and you don't know why you didn't or you remember all the obstacles that you self-created. But, you know, this idea of self-centery or, uh, you know, the voice in your head that overwhelms the reasons to say something. So I'm sure in the work that you've done, people are more likely to create reasons not to do it then they sit back and say, hey, here are the f- top five reasons why I think I should say something to you, right? Because I think if they do that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, I think they might feel better and maybe more likely to say something. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think it's also, it's a sad fact that, you know, we, we evolved generally, right, as a species, like all species, um, to care a whole lot about survival and perpetuation of our genes, uh, we didn't really evolve to care about this sort of amorphous thing called a modern organization and its success, right? So uh, we have a lot of aspects of our brain that are hyper self-protective to the point of erring often. Uh, you know, one way to kind of think about it is uh, in nature, if I think I see a bear 10 times and run, and I'm wrong all 10 times, there's never a bear, I'm still alive. If just one time I, I, I don't run when there might be a bear, I'm, I'm a goner. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why the brain developed mechanisms to rationalize away in action, to overestimate likely harms, and a whole bunch of other things that would lead toward us choosing silence. And you know, unfortunately, like it takes real discipline, like real conscious discipline to say, rather than just validating my first instinct about risk, I'm going to actually challenge myself to sort of think through what are the likely positive outcomes and negative outcomes. You know, that's really a developed skill that that takes time. Takes time. And I think it's also in many ways cultural, as we went to junior high, high school and college, you know, most of us did not attend a class that taught us how to respectfully and politely, of course, uh, provide feedback that might be hard for the other person to hear, provide feedback that might be helpful to them, right? Uh, you know, uh, feedback is not always negative. It's sometimes, and certainly where we're asking people to be brave at work, uh, it might be intended to be helpful. And so, you know, to your point, it's, it's, ground into us, right? You don't speak up in class. You don't talk that way to the teacher. Uh, you know, you don't talk back to the policeman, right? It's in our culture that we don't say stuff. And, you know, to your observation, I think it's deeply ground into our DNA. Yeah, there's no question, right? I mean, beyond the fact that most of us don't reach adulthood having sort of been taught and given opportunities to really practice skilled ways to do that, we've also just been socialized to not do it. Um, you know, I think Stanley Milgram, you know, who was a famous social psychologist who, you know, did the obedience to authority studies, um, you know, he, he said what we have to acknowledge, whether we like it or not, is that um, from childhood on, people are socialized by parents, by teachers, by religious authorities, essentially to defer to authority. You know, and uh, an example he gives is, even parents, well-intended parents, are endlessly teaching their kid to follow authority. And he used the example of, uh, you know, hey, son or hey, daughter, eat your peas. And he said, you know, every day 
we give tons of instructions like eat your peas or brush your teeth or get your pajamas on. And yeah, in each of those, there's the specific message, right? Eat, brush, whatever. But the underlying message that's the same across every one of those instances is do what I tell you, listen to the boss. And so if we're honest, you know, how many of us reach adulthood without having deeply internalized do what people above you say? Well, I'm sure, and we won't have time today to talk about uh, organizational hierarchies, especially, you know, in the 40s, 50s and 60s that were highly structured that, you know, the CEO and the president knew everything and anything they said to do, you did, whether you wanted to or not. Of course, that's now changing and hopefully people are becoming a little bit more empathetic and vulnerable and uh, collaborative with each other. But, uh, you know, I agree with you that this is the culture and environment that we have been brought up in. In your book, Jim, you know, there's a chapter that talks a little bit about language. I think it's chapter 10 that talks about language. And this is a huge area for me as it relates to why people don't say what they need to say or do what they need to do in the workplace because they don't know the right language to use. They're afraid that as soon as it starts to come out of their mouth, it's going to collapse and things are not going to go the way that they had hoped. So I'd love if you could just talk for a couple of minutes about good language and appropriate language to use or to avoid in order to really say what you need to say to help somebody else be more productive. Sure. So let me let, let me sort of say two high level kinds of things to keep in mind. So one is you can have you can have planned sort of brilliantly, you know, the content of a message. Uh, and then goof it up with just a couple a couple words here or there that trigger exactly the unintended response. So, for example, words that suggest a certainty beyond doubt. You know, if you say to somebody, well, it's it's here's the evidence. So it's obvious this is what we should do. What's the implication? If you don't see it my way because it's so obvious, you must be a dummy. Uh, or when we say things like, um, you never do this or you always do this. Well, there are very few things in life that actually happen with that degree of frequency or infrequency. And when you frame it that way, you often get derailed into a conversation about, you know, what's the one time so-and-so actually did this? It's not never. Um, you know, we say things like, don't take it personally, when actually, I would argue, uh, we actually probably never use that phrase when some part of us doesn't know it's quite personal. So, there are lots of actually just small things we do that uh, there are words around ethics um, that the second you bring a, a word like, you know, immoral into a conversation, you're highly likely to derail. So some of it is actually just small word choices that if we can learn to be conscious about and avoid, we'll get a lot farther. Then there's sort of a, a second sort of broad principle about framing that I think is really important. And that is, uh, we all have generally been taught, you know, whether it's in, in school, debate club, a college communication class, whatever, we've been taught to, you know, develop a persuasive pitch. And, you know, they say, you know, come up with your thesis, organize your, your evidence and, and present it. What we haven't generally been taught is sort of from whose perspective you should do that. And so the default is always going to be, I'm going to sort of make a point, marshal specific evidence, and then frame it in the way that's most compelling to me. The problem with that is if I already have the resources I need to carry out some new idea, if I can already guarantee the change is going to happen in your behavior, 
etc. I'm not making a pitch or having a conversation anyway. The whole reason that's happening is I need somebody else to be compelled to change. And in that case, what I find compelling is largely irrelevant. What matters is what you find compelling. And, you know, we simply fail to do that in ways that just sort of, you know, make our, our pitches often dead on arrival. You know, an example might be if, if the reason I want you to do something is that I think for the organization, um, it is culturally the right thing to do. Uh, it's super important for us to do it, to be consistent with our values and our mission. So it's culturally us and it's a huge upside opportunity for us to do it. And so that's how I pitch it to you. Cultural fit upside. But it turns out because of who you are or what your responsibilities are, or the pressure you're feeling from some other place, what compels you to act are actually things that are economically good for the organization and you're most compelled when somebody tells you why there's a big threat to our existence or well-being if we don't act. And so the simple fact that I've missed the I've missed the target on opportunity versus threat framing and culture versus economic framing means I'm sort of in a big hole right out of the gate. And so what I think you know we have to realize is that there's the sort of ultimate like what we want to happen, but the vast vast majority of the time there are different ways to frame that same core message. And it's what the other person can hear best that matters, not what you find compelling. Well, and it sounds like something that somebody could do is potentially be a little bit more curious about, hey, we have a business problem we're trying to solve. What would motivate you to be an active participant? And if they said, well, if I'm feeling that there's a threat or there are financial rewards, I'd be very interested, right? And then you could say, okay, let me think about that, go back and frame your message and go back versus just going in and presenting it the way you think it should be presented, which could be completely incorrect. Yeah, and, and you know, I think about that as there's sort of an ahead of time way to be curious, and then there's an in the moment way. So the, the majority of the time, right, we're not having the first ever interaction with somebody. We've sat in lots of meetings and watched the boss react to lots of ideas, problems, whatever. So we don't even have to ask. We can simply be observers ahead of time and say, boy, do you notice that every time people pitch a threat, she just gets all defensive. But when people talk about how we're going to win in the game of innovation, she gets all excited. You know, part of it is just be an observer ahead of time and frame appropriately. And then, you know, yeah, sometimes you have no choice but to sort of make your best guessing and start the conversation. And then I think part of being curious is means really being skilled at at inquiry. So if you're starting to get some initial resistance, you know, being smart enough to sort of pull back. Don't keep pushing, pushing, say, "Oh, I'm going to keep you know keep flailing here." But step back and say, "You know, I'm sensing this isn't resonating with you. I'm sensing actually this might be upsetting you. Can you help me understand why that's the case? Is there something on your mind that I don't understand?" You know. We can use skillful questioning in real time before we just keep shoveling more dirt on ourselves. Right. So the, the advice is uh, in real time, be curious about what the person's thinking or why they might be thinking it versus still digging your hole in your way to try to convince them or uh, you know get them to go the way that you want them to go. So, Jim, thank you so much for your time and advice today and thoughts. How can people contact you if they'd like to talk a little bit more about bravery in the workplace or hear more about the work that you're doing? 
So the best way, one of the best ways is to go to my website, jimdietert.com. Uh, there's a section on there that you can learn all about me, my work, the various aspects of what I'm doing. You can also, there's a contact uh, place on there where you can shoot me an email directly. Uh, you can also, uh, and I hope you will, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, that's where I do a lot of original writing and link into other writings. So, so jimdieter.com or find Jim Dieter on LinkedIn would both be great. Fantastic. And I'd also encourage our listeners to buy your book, Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work. I read it. I loved it. I wish we had more time to continue to talk about it. Yet, I think you shared some great insights and observations today, Jim. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. And we hope you join us next week as we further explore Being Brave at Work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and our download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, who you can reach at 800-222-5963, or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio everywhere online. Do you have something to say yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.